0: It directed his attention to something like a small window. Whatever it was, it did not appear to work like an earthly telescope, Ransom thought, though an attempt made next day to explain the principles of the telescope to the Sorn threw grave doubts on his own ability to discern the difference. He leaned forward with his elbows on the sill of the aperture and looked. He saw perfect blackness, and, floating in the center of it, Seemingly an arm's length away, a bright disc about the size of a half crown. Most of its surface was featureless, shining silver towards the bottom markings appeared and below them, a white cap, just as he had seen the polar caps in astronomical photographs of Mars. He wondered for a moment if it was Mars. He was looking at then as his eyes took in the markings better, he realized what they were. Northern Europe, and a piece of North America. They were upside down, with the North Pole at the bottom of the picture, and this somehow shocked him. But it was Earth he was seeing, even perhaps England, though the picture shook a little and his eyes were quickly getting tired, and he could not be certain that he was not imagining it. It was all there in that little disc, London, Athens, Jerusalem, Shakespeare. There everyone had lived and everything had happened and there, presumably, his pack was still lying in the porch of an empty house near Stirk. Yes, he said dully to the Sorn. That is my world. It was the bleakest moment in all his travels.
1: I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ
0: self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. And this is just a quick note from Future Chris, the editor of this podcast, to say we now have a substack. It is inklingsvarietyhour.substack.com. So check it out, subscribe, and please do leave comments if you'd like to discuss any of the things we talk about in this episode a bit further. I've also uploaded the old episodes up there if you want to discuss any ideas from from those as well. Um, Also, watch out for a bonus episode later this week where I will be interviewing authors who are publishing through Signum University Press. It's very exciting. I hope you're able to come along. I'm Chris Pipkin, citizen of Earth, and with me to discuss Out of the Silent Planet, I have Sophie Burkhart. How are you doing, Sophie?
1: I'm doing very well. Glad to be here again.
0: Sophie is currently a master student at Regent College, which allows her to spend pretty much all her time using over the fascinating intersection of stories and theology. When she's not reading books or writing papers, she's attempting to spot all the incredible and so far highly elusive marine animals around Vancouver. Yeah, how are things up in Canada right now?
1: They're pretty good. It snowed the other day, which when I moved here, people were like, it never snows in Vancouver. But um, I actually, the other day I went for a walk down to the beach, which is like 10 minutes from me. And I saw two seals. So oh, cool. I'm moving up in my spotting marine wildlife goals. That is great,
0: <laughs> that is great. None of them were like 10 feet tall and paddling a boat, were they?
1: Unfortunately not, I was, I was hopeful. but None of them offered you any seals. alcohol? No, <sighs> a, more,
0: more's the pity. Yeah, one one thing that's, that's interesting to me about the Out of the Silent Planet is it's so cold but it doesn't seem like there's ever snow on Mars either, which is yeah. which is interesting. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if that's accurate or if although although he does say like just now the poles have ice anyway. But uh, right,
1: yeah. yeah, But all the water is really hot in yeah, Canterbury. Yeah, so it is um, an interesting combination.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So if the water is so hot. It must evaporate, right? Right. And then it's got to go somewhere, right?
1: And then it presumably would come back down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. So. Mm. So maybe
1: he's just not know. in the snowy season when he's there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe this gets us to some of the uh, criticism of of the space trilogy, but uh, but but yeah, we're reading the third part of *Out of the Silent Planet* today, chapters uh, chapters fifteen on. Published in 1938, Out of the Silent Planet was Lewis's first work of fiction, asterisk, Pilgrim's Regress, really technically, but it's so allegorical that it kind of, like many of Lewis's works, is sort of like, you know, the screw tape letters, The Great Divorce. It's sort of fiction, sort of not fiction, but uh, but Out of the Silent Planet is his first work of pure fiction. Um, it's part of a project undertaken with J.R.R. Tolkien to use what they called scientific fiction to re-mythologize our view of the cosmos in which Lewis would write a space travel story and Tolkien would write a time travel story. Out of the Silent Planet was meant to correct a particular anti-mythical and anti-Christian scientific view that Lewis found smuggled into most science fiction. Uh, Lewis explicitly uh, counters the secularist philosophies of J.B.S. Haldane and H.G. Wells, as well as the then popular eugenics movement, all of which advocated that humanity should take control of their own destinies rather than submitting to God. But it is also corrective to the far more common assumption that meaning derived from Christianity does not extend beyond our planet. Lewis suggests that the opposite might be true even as he takes us on a tour of some of the most vivid cultures and geographies ever explored in a space travel book. So yeah, I, I mentioned um, there's, a, there's a really actually excellent letter written by J.B.S. Haldane in response to this, the entire space trilogy that's worth reading. It's called something like Auld Horny, A-U-L-D-H-O-R-N-I-E, which is like the Scottish word for devil. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it makes some decent critiques. It basically suggests that in some ways, Weston's a straw man and some of the, you know, people in that hideous strength are as well. Right. But I mean, it, it I, I think, I think there's plenty to disagree with, with about it as well. And, and Lewis also started writing a, a reply, but never sent it to, to Haldane. And that reply was discovered among his papers after he, after he died. But, but yeah, Haldane is not as stupid as Weston. And he, he has, he has some decent things to say, just except, except it's like very much from a Marxist point of view as well. So he's certainly, you know, is blind in his own way as well, but it's, 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 it's interesting. Okay. So here's our story so far. Ransom is a philologist at Cambridge. He's been kidnapped by the great physicist Weston who eats Einstein on toast and the great guy with money divine. Who have already been on a secret mission to another planet, which they call Malacandra, and plan to return, mostly to get gold and commit genocide. After a mostly peaceful voyage in which Ransom learns to think of space as heaven, Ransom realizes he's been brought to Malakandra as, well, a ransom. As Weston and Divine can make no headway in their project to exploit and to people the world for human use without someone to offer to the sentient Malakandrians known as Sorns. But upon seeing the Sorns, who looked to him like tall ogres, Ransom breaks free of his human captors and runs away, only to be discovered by a second type of sentient creature, the Hrasa. He lives among the Hrasa, learning their language and making his first friend on Mars, Hjoy. Hrasa are tribal, poetic, and deeply intelligent. They, along with the two other species of sentient Malacandrons, or Khnau, worship someone named Maladil the Young and are ruled by a planetary spirit called the Oyarsa. While they are subject to death and hunt an aquatic creature called the Hanakra, they live a peaceful, idyllic existence. This piece is destroyed, however, when Weston and Divine reappear, shooting and killing Hyoi. Ransom flees from the lower hand Dramet, the heated, watered cracks in the airless surface of Malacandra, where human life is possible, up to the Harandra, where he almost dies for lack of oxygen, before being rescued by Algrey, who is a Sorn. Algray teaches him some things, especially about Eldola. And uh, and and then in the passage that we heard at the top, Ransom, the reason that his mood is so dismal after looking at the earth in this telescope is that he realizes that his earth is the silent planet, Volchandra, which does not have an Oyarsa and uh, seems to be sort of out of the not part of the celestial conversation, right, between the worlds. And uh, it's a it's a sobering moment for him. Anything else that, that you noticed about the passage right at the top, Sophie?
1: I think also, even beyond it just being Thalcandra, is that he comes to this realization that everything... Substantial in human history has all happened on what looks, from his distance, like a tiny place. So I think it's a very humbling moment that Earth is not all that matters in the world. There are more stories going on.
0: Yeah, there are quite a few humbling moments throughout, throughout this book. Like not <laughs> Ransom least gets humbled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not least when he's like uh, when he meets his first now his first sentient being and he starts throwing up on his boat.
1: That's a good and
0: one. yeah, they they just kind of happen in every chapter. Yeah. why do you think that's a recurring thing here? kind of the humbling of of ransom, the humbling of humans in general. why why is that something that Lewis chooses to do kind of on every, yeah, every in every place he's able to?
1: Yeah, I think it's because it's the opposite of most science fiction of the time and of just sort of the modern view in general of man as somebody who has power and control and is at the center of everything and I feel like it's also part of him going back to a more medieval view of the world that sees us while well, sees the earth as like cosmologically the center man is humbled and we're we're part of an imperfect place where we can look up at you know the perfect spheres up above so yeah I feel like it's that twofold of him rejecting A modern view of the world and sort of bringing back a bit of a medieval flavor of of understanding our role in the universe
0: yeah again and again he's he's reminded that even though he assumed and the people in general who brought him there assumed that they would be the ones taking action they're the dynamic ones who you know cross boundaries and do new things and create inventions and and things like that, that, that meant that they would, you know, necessarily that, that, or that they are necessarily better than the Malacandrians they meet or, or more sophisticated or more knowledgeable, or, you know, even ransom while he's living among the Harasa wonders if maybe he needs to tell them about Jesus. Right. Um, (laughs) And then he, and then he finds out, oh no, they actually really, I mean, they may not know about Jesus, but they also are like unfallen. So they're living in perfect sort of communion with Maladil through Oyarsa and the Eldela. And in fact, they're the ones who undertake his religious instruction. And this happens also with the with the Soren, where they're talking about Eldila earlier in that chapter. And then and, and Ransom's asking him, you know, partly because the Hrasa told him, Oh yeah, the Sor the Saroni, the Sorens would know about that. He's asking them, what are these Eldila? And the and the Soren says, Do you tell me, small one, that there are no Eldila in your world? Not that I know of, but what are Eldila and why can I not see them? Have they no bodies? Of course they have bodies. There are a great many bodies you cannot see. Every animal's eyes see some things, but not others. Do you know of many kinds of body in Thulcandra? Ransom tried to give the Soren some idea of the terrestrial terminology of solids, liquids, and gases. He listened with great attention. That is not the way to say it, It replied. Body is movement. If it is at one speed, you smell something. If at another, you hear a sound. If at another, you see a sight. If at another... You neither see, nor hear, nor smell, nor know the body in any way. But mark this, small one, that the two ends meet. How do you mean? If movement is faster, then that which moves is more nearly in two places at once. That is true. But if the movement were faster still, it is difficult, for you do not know many words. You see that if you made it faster and faster, in the end, the moving thing would be in all places at once, small one. I think i see that well then that is the thing at the top of all bodies so fast that it is at rest so truly body that it has ceased being body at all but we will not talk of that start from where we are small one the swiftest thing that touches our senses is light we do not truly see light we only see slower things lit by it so that for us light is on the edge the last thing we know before things become too swift for us. But the body of an Eldil is a movement swift as light. You may say its body is made of light, but not of that which which is light for the Eldil. His light is a swifter movement, which for us is nothing at all. And what we call light is for him a thing like water, a visible thing, a thing he can touch and bathe in, even a dark thing when not illumined by the swifter and what we call firm things, flesh and earth, seem to him thinner and harder to see than our light, and more like clouds and nearly nothing. To us the Eldil is a thin half-real body that can go through rocks and walls. To himself he goes through them, because he is solid and firm, and they are like cloud. And what is true like to him, and fills the heaven, so that he will plunge into the rays of the sun to refresh himself from it, is to us the black nothing in the sky at night these things are not strange small one though they are beyond our senses but it is strange that the Eldula never visit tholkandra so so yeah i love that i love his you know kind of question and answer with with the Sorn about the Eldula and about different bodies moving at different speeds and it it really it really sort of combines something that sounds like modern physics. I don't know how correct it is according (laughs) to modern physics. I I have a feeling possibly not that correct, but it sounds a little more modern, but it also takes up into itself these different scholastic views and also Renaissance views of angels, right? The scholastics viewed angels as pure intelligences. That's why there's this famous question of how many can dance on the head of a pin, right? Because it actually is an interesting question. If a body does not take up any space, then you could potentially get an infinite number of angels on the head of a pin right if they're if right. they're pure intelligence but uh, but the Renaissance view is more that angelic bodies were made of something like ether right or 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 like mm-hmm. they 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 were actual bodies it's just you couldn't see them right and this kind of collapses that distinction so that yes they do have bodies, but they're bodies that we can't. Because our matter moves at a different speed from theirs, we can't see. It, it's like spec, like light spectrum stuff, right? Um, right. But uh, yeah, I'm not a scientist, but it, it <laughs> sounds like science to me, so it's 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 cool.
1: Yeah, I find it's such a fascinating part too because it feels very, like, you have this notion almost of like perfection being almost the ceasing of movement because you're moving so quickly, which again feels very like greek or medieval of the like moving in a circle is the most perfect type of movement so i feel like that's interesting of him weaving that as well into again what feels more modern with i'm assuming he's playing something to do with atoms and stuff always moving and that sort of thing so it is all really fascinating but then like he gets to that and which almost feels like a I don't know, here at Region, everybody's like really concerned about being embodied creatures, like we're all pro-body. pro, pro body. And so it almost feels like he's moving away from a high view of the body if this almost ceased, ceasing to move is ideal. But then he goes right back into the fact that, like you said, they're actually more solid, just like in The Great Divorce, which I think is just super cool that like oh it seems thin to us but that's really because just so much more going on there which i i just love the way lewis explores these things so neat
0: yeah yeah he he kind of and i mean i've said this before and and maybe it's not fair but his views of the resurrection in some ways seem to be a bit different from a lot of like orthodox christian views and now and and he like defended orthodoxy but i think like he's enough of a neoplatonist and 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 you can kind of see it here that he's sort of like well what if it's a body anyway like so like if spirits are still matter right but matter moving at different speeds and if that's what the spirit is right um Mm -hmm mightn't when we're resurrected it not look like flesh the same way that our current flesh does mightn't it not be like a spirit right and and this is getting into like potentially dodgy territory right to, to like a good conservative orthodox christian right but i i think i think it's interesting the way he complicates this question by well what exactly is matter what do we mean when we say matter what do we mean when we say spirit angels are pure spirits but what is that right um mm-hmm. and, and and what yeah. does that mean there's there's part in kind of the appendix or the postscript lewis is including a letter from the real ransom and, uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's commenting on, oh, well, you know, I suppose the book will have to stay the way it is. It's disappointing, blah, blah, blah. But he says, now as to your most annoying question, did agre in describing the Eldila confuse the ideas of the subtler body and the superior being? No, the confusion is entirely your own. He said two things. One, that the Elda had bodies different from those of planetary animals and two, that they were superior in intelligence. Neither he nor anyone else in Malacandra ever confused the one statement with the other or deduced the one from the other. In fact, I have reasons for thinking that there are also irrational animals with the Eldil type of body. You remember Chaucer's Irish Beasts? So so, so, yeah, I mean, there he, he kind of pushes or, or, or pulls back a little bit from this sort of potentially gnostic reading of of neoplatonism right where he's like um well just because it's a body moving at a faster speed does not mean it's a superior order of creature but but yeah i mean the the sorns the sorns are interesting like my my tendency and i've I've heard this elsewhere before i think my tendency is to read the three species of of now in malacandra as like kind of types of the three different humans, right so you've got you've got Weston who's a scientist, <laughs> you've got Ransom who's a philologist, like humanities guy, right and you've got and, and obviously like into languages and and then you've got divine who's more interested in gold and wealth right And you have these three races of of Malacandrians, or Malacandrians who you've got the you've got the Sorens who are, who who know how to make gas masks essentially, like or 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 oxygen masks, right? Who who are more scientists? Uh, you have the Hrasa who do a lot of poetry, right? And 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 have the best language, and so everybody speaks their language to communicate with each other. And then you've got the Pfiffltrigi who who work precious metals, right? But each of them is also like pretty different from the three humans and and Weston doesn't really think a great deal about his priors in terms of his philosophy. He just kind of goes out and tries to conquer new frontiers based on a, a pretty like basic philosophy of sort of, yeah, utilitarian kind of eugenicist. The new is better. The old is bad sort of way of, way of looking at the world. Whereas the Sorens are philosophers. Like they're not just scientists, but they think about things. They, they like talk like scholastics, right? As Mm -hmm. as well as like Einstein. But, and then it's the same, the Hrasa are makers of poetry. They're not just studying poetry. And the Fifletrigi care about craftsmanship. They don't just want gold so that they can, you know, get more power and pleasure. They, they want gold so they can, Make beautiful things with it, so so it's 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 interesting. Both both the ways in which they're similar to the three people, but but also ways in which because they're not bent, or 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 even just because they're different, they're um they're not entirely like those three men. So because this is called Out of the Silent Planet rather than Voyage to Malakandra, I'd like to focus on how this voyage causes him to view Earth in a different way. Or, or to think about his own people, to think about humans in a different way. And We've been talking about the way that humans are sort of humiliated throughout this, just at the point where they thought they would be conquerors of the universe, right? They kind of are made sort of clowns in the universe, or at least in the solar system. So the next chapter, he is journeying because he has to. By the way, he he was scared to death of the Sorns, and then he, he meets this Sorn, and he's you know, a, a little bit creepy and a little bit strange because he looks more like a human than the Hras, than the Hrasa did, but he's, he turns out to be a, a good egg and tells him he has to take him to Meldalorn, which is kind of the capital of Malacandra. That's where the Oyarsa is, or at least that's where you go to meet the Oyarsa, who's the guardian spirit of the, of the planet. So they go on this journey and he's sitting on Algrey's shoulder. And smelling on the the oxygen mask. And uh, we get these amazing descriptions of the of the Martian surface or the Malacandran surface. And at one point, he sees the he sees the Harandra, and this is chapter 16, about halfway through. Over the edge of the valley as it had frothed down from the true Harandra, came great curves of the rose tinted cumular stuff, which he had seen so often from a distance. Now on a nearer view, they appeared hard as stone in substance, but puffed above and stalked beneath like vegetation. His original simile of a giant cauliflower turned out to be surprisingly correct. Stone cauliflowers the size of cathedrals and the color of pale rose. He asked the Sorn what it was. It is the old forests of Malacandra, Said once there was air on the Harandra, and it was warm. To this day, if you could get up there and live, you would see it all covered with the bones of ancient creatures. It was once full of life and noise. It was then these forests grew, and in and out among their stalks went a people that have vanished from the world these many thousand years. They were covered not with fur, but with a coat like mine. They did not go in the water swimming, or on the ground walking. They glided in the air on broad, flat limbs, which kept them up. It is said they were great singers, and in those days the red forests echoed with their music. Now the forests have become stone, and only Eldila can go among them. We still have such creatures in our world, said Ransom. We call them birds. Where was Uyarsa when all this happened to the Harandra, where he is now? And he could not prevent it? I do not know. But a world is not made to last forever, much less a race. That is not Melodil's way. So on they go, and there's more just amazing description. Again, I I really think, you know, of all the science fiction books that I've read, this is the one that is the most successful at describing a really alien world like like a world that truly and maybe it's just like Lewis's ability as a fantasist that that allows him to do this but it's 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 so full and it's so interesting and there's so much history you know related to the description but you have this you know the surface of Mars the dead cold red surface of Mars is actually the top of a stone like petrified forest right that was that was destroyed so we get this we get this idea that even though Malachandra is in many ways perfect and it's people unfallen, that some kind of great disaster has happened, right? And he's just kind of slowly, slowly building up towards this picture until we find out towards the end, what it was that happened. And that's kind of, in some ways, like the suspense of this at this point is an intellectual suspense rather than a, Oh no, what's going to happen to Ransom? Is he going to die? Sort of suspense. Do you think when it talks about the P like, so algre calls it a, peep, a people that have vanished from the world these many thousand years, right? And then he describes birds. And Ransom says, we still have such creatures in our world. We call them birds. Do you think these are now? Or do you think these are an animal that, you know, like, like our birds?
1: Surely it's, I feel like it's got to be a now. Maybe a now that looks like a bird, just like the Harasa look like otterish creatures. It would it would seem like a, a a classic ransom human mistake to assume that it's a creature and not a now.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought at first when I when I read this too, and then reading it again, him saying we call them birds, and and also there was a there's a point later on, and we'll, and we'll get to it with the with the stone carving where he sees a fourth type of creature carved and at first i always thought that well that must be the fourth kind of now that was extinct and then like i think reading a little closer it implies that these are actually eldula but but yeah i um
1: yeah
0: I, true. I i think it's it's as likely to be that the the birds are a an actual people right an actual now although he doesn't say Yeah. It's funny. He doesn't say now here. He says a people, right? So, so I'm not sure. And he also has feathers, right? So you're kind of like, well, I mean, you already have one feathered people. How many feathered people, you know, how many feathers now (laughs) do you really need? But, (laughs) but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure. I'm not be, I'd be interested if, if anybody else has Ideas about it. Maybe this is something to ask David Downing about when we when we talk with him next next time. But uh, yeah.
1: Well, I wonder too if because right after when Agre says that the world is a world is not made to last forever, much less a race. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I mean, yeah. which again, it could just be referring to animals. But it's like a very pointed, you know, the human race is not meant to last forever. Perhaps this is an example of another now species that wasn't yeah to last forever. i don't know that could be trying to pull too
0: too no much. i don't i don't think it is i think that's because we don't we don't refer to animals as races right we we normally right. we pref, we refer to humans or canal as as races so i think that's that's good evidence in in the camp of yeah that the the birds were were now but uh, yeah and and this of course is a rebuke to Weston's philosophy as well, right? That, that he thinks he can Mm -hmm. be the savior of mankind by prolonging mankind's life indefinitely, right? That this is how we save people rather than submission to God. It's through extending ourselves as far as we can go. And, you know, again and again, yeah, this, this idea is rebuked in this book, right? That no, that's not the way to that that ever everlasting life and eternal life are not the same thing, right? Right. And it's it's very it's very Tolkien esque in that way. So so he he also talks with a, a bunch of Sorns when they get together. We have this another view of the of the world. He has to kind of give an account for people, and and the way they they the Sorns are very interested in the way people live in Falcondra. And, and he learns a little bit about the way that people live in Malacandra, chiefly that there are not so many books in Malacandra because it's better to remember things in your mind and all the really important things Oyarsa can remember anyway because he lives forever. There, he's talking about, you know, both kind of Earth itself, the science of Earth, human history, And the Sorens, as they're asking him questions, often they drew out of him indirectly much more knowledge than he consciously possessed, apparently working from a wide background of general science. A casual remark about trees when Ransom was trying to explain the manufacture of paper would fill up for them a gap in his sketchy answers to their botanical questions. His account of terrestrial navigation might illuminate mineralogy and his description of the steam engine gave them a better knowledge of terrestrial air and water than Ransom had ever had. He had decided from the outset that he would be quite frank, for he now felt that it would be not now, and also that it would be unavailing to do otherwise. They were astonished at what he had to tell them of human history, of war, slavery, and prostitution. It is because they have no Oyarsa, said one of the pupils. It is because every one of them wants to be a little Oyarsa himself, said Algray. They cannot help it, said the old sorn. There must be rule, yet how can creatures rule themselves? Beasts must be ruled by Hnao and Hnau by Eldila, and Eldila by Mal- Maladil. These creatures have no Eldila. They are like one trying to lift himself by his own hair, or one trying to see over a whole country when he is on a level with it, like a female trying to beget young on herself. Two things about our world particularly stuck in their minds. One was the extraordinary degree to which problems of lifting and carrying things absorbed our energy. The other was the fact that we had only one kind of now. They thought this must have far-reaching effects in the narrowing of sympathies and even of thought. Your thought must be at the mercy of your blood, said the old Sorn, for you cannot compare it with the thought that floats on a different blood. So anyway, Ransom does not really enjoy talking about this, right? The more he has to kind of talk about his own world, it's it's, it's not so much fun. But uh, yeah, the idea of... People needing to be ruled and not being sufficient to rule themselves is is interesting and and again is a rebuke to Weston's view, right? Which is human beings should take their destiny into their own hand and and you know determine even how and what kind of people they beget, right? And uh, right. and this is yeah again a. A shot across the bow of, of that sort of philosophy, but uh, yeah. Then we have more about you know later on the f- the way in which different kinds of creatures will see things differently and how that enriches people's uh, experience and, and their thought. But uh, yes, yeah, so we go on. He goes to Mel It's beautifully described. Very different from any place he's been yet. There are Sorns there. There are Crosso there. And then there are this third type of creature from Mars called the Fiffletriggy, who are who are very unusual. And they're more like insects than the other two because they have these elbows that they can walk on, while they or or rest, you know, on while they while they make things. And their faces look like what was it like yellow anteaters or something like that?
1: Something like that. They're kind of froggish, too.
0: Yeah, and they're the the artisans, right, of of the world. And so it's interesting because it's, again, reading the first men in the moon, it's not too different from what some scientific types, scientific types of of Lewis's day were kind of envisioning as like, this is an ideal way to organize the society. We need different types of people to do different types of jobs as society needs them to do. Right, and you have something like this here, but really without the creatures themselves organizing it. Right, they're they're just different kinds of creatures, and the, and there's also no hierarchy here between the creatures. Like they are all are yeah. just good at different things, which is interesting.
1: Right, like the some of the other like the first men in the moon. It feels more like an economic system. which they've organized themselves by and there's certainly like lots of there's like lower class and upper class but yeah this is very different where it's sort of each are just naturally suited for different things and they're all equally valuable things which do and I think yeah the fact that there's no creatures that have a hierarchy over the other creatures is a pretty big distinction and probably what makes it feel so right and natural versus forced and oppressive.
0: Yeah. Which is funny because I mean, Lewis generally really liked hierarchy, but, uh, but, but here not so much between different now, right. Right. I I bet there's even hierarchy within each class of now, right. Mm -hmm. At least, uh, you know, the, uh, the Pitheltriggies seem to be matriarchal, right. And (laughs) that was uh, was a funny part. The uh, gosh. The the Hrasa, I imagine, have older Hrasa who are, you know, more like the chieftains or whatever else. And yeah, probably
1: have philosopher kings or something.
0: Yeah, I'd imagine. Well, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's that's the other thing. I don't know if the so yeah, if the if the eugenicists and the sort of Wellesians and and, yeah, I I don't even know what to call them. The the views against which Lewis is reacting. who are who are which are slightly more socialist but they believe in division of labor but i don't know if they get this from plato or or not but it's it's very like with 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 plato it's like you know you have these different tiers of people and there are the people at the bottom and the people at the top but the people at the bottom don't want to do anything else than what they're doing right um Mm -hmm. it's like oh you know, th- you lack the intelligence to appreciate how low you are, and therefore you're quite content, right? And it's the same way in Brave New World, right? Yeah. Where there are people who are, who are genetically engineered to do the menial labor, and it's viewed as menial, but they themselves don't view it that way, because it's, you know, it's, it's what they love to do, because it's what they were kind of made for, right? Right. And this is like, Kind of like that, but also very much. But there's not no
1: like medialness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It feels it Everything feels much so less creepy. Playable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's it's really like they're they're kind of like, oh yeah, we all speak the Hrasa's language language. And the Hrasa are like, oh well, you know, the Sorns, they can't make poetry. And then they're absolute failures with boats, right? But uh, and then and then the Sorns kind of laugh at the you know Hrasa or or at least Al Gray is is kind of like you mean they didn't? They they sent you up this way, even though they knew you were probably going to run out of oxygen. They <laughs> they didn't give you anything for the journey. They uh, probably would have thought it would be just as well for you to have died, you know, on your way up here, so they could write nice songs about the brave <laughs> Mon who who went all the way up to uh, you know to the Harandra. When a little forethought could have spared you death, right? right. And uh, you know, Ransom gets offended on behalf of the Harasa, but yeah, all the species just kind of. Laugh at each other, right, and in this sort of congenial way, which is which is interesting, and it's a it's a it's a contrast to how seriously humans take themselves, right, and 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 Weston especially takes himself. So he's wandering around this this island, this this holy island of Mel and he's looking at pictures in a in a kind of like avenue next to a grove with uh, with stones all along and they seem to be very ancient pictures and we're getting closer to this mystery of kind of like what well what's happened to malacandra why is it the way it is why is the surface kind of dead the pictures were very puzzling side by side with representations of sorens and hrosa and what he's supposed to be fiffeltrigi there occurred again and again an upright wavy figure with only the suggestion of a face and with wings The wings were perfectly recognizable, and this puzzled him very much. Could it be that the traditions of Malacandrian art went back to that early geological and biological era, when, as Augre had told him, there was life, including bird life, on the Harandra? The answer of the stones seemed to be yes. He saw pictures of the old red forests with unmistakable birds flying among them and many other creatures that he did not know. On another stone, many of these were represented lying dead and a fantastic Nakra like figure, presumably symbolizing the cold was depicted in the sky above them, shooting at them with darts. Creatures still alive were crowding round the winged wavy figure, which he took to be Oyarsa, pictured as a winged flame. On the next stone, Oyarsa appeared followed by many creatures and apparently making a furrow with some pointed instrument. Another picture showed the furrow being enlarged by triggy with digging tools, Sorns were piling the earth up in pinnacles on each side, and the Harasa seemed to be making water channels. Ransom wondered whether this were a mythical account of the making of the Hondramits, or whether they were conceivably artificial in fact. So that's an interesting first picture to encounter, right? Of, of of this kind of like coming of this of this cold, right? Or of, you know, as we'll find out later, the bent one, possibly. Uh, what do you make of this? What what do you think the wavy figure with the wings are? Is it Oyarsa? Is it Eldula? Is it the bird people?
1: I think, I think I'm think i with you that the wavy figure is Oyarsa or the Eldula in general. Because so I think he says he saw pictures of the old red forest with unmistakable birds flying among them. So I mm-hmm. think the bird creatures are already accounted for.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's it's not just the Oyarsa, right? Later on, the Oyarsa will talk about this, and he'll say, by my hand, Maladil did this or that, right? Mm-hmm. But Oyarsa is also cooperating with... So it's Maladil doing it, but it's Maladil doing it through the Oyarsa, and the Oyarsa is also digging out these trenches through these creatures, right? Which, I mean, there's the question of, is this, in fact exactly what happened or is it just sort of describing the orientation of the different creatures and the things that they're more kind of, yeah, prone to doing, but it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Many of the pictures he could make nothing of. One that particularly puzzled him showed at the bottom, a segment of a circle behind and above, which rose three quarters of a disc divided into concentric rings. He thought it was a picture of the sun rising behind a hill Certainly, the segment at the bottom was full of Malacandrian scenes, Oyarsa and Meldalorn, Sorns on the mountain edge of the Harandra, and many other things both familiar to him and strange. He turned from it to examine the disc which rose behind it. It was not the sun. The sun was there, unmistakably, at the center of the disc. Round this, the concentric circles revolved. In the first and smallest of these was pictured a little ball on which rode a winged figure, something like Oyarsa, but holding what appeared to be a trumpet. In the next, a similar ball carried another of the flaming figures. This one, instead of even the suggested face, had two bulges, which after long inspection he decided were meant to be the udders or breasts of a female mammal. By this time he was quite sure that he was looking at a picture of the solar system. The first ball was Mercury, the second Venus, and what an extraordinary coincidence, thought Ransom, that their mythology, like ours, associates some idea of the female with Venus. The problem would have occupied him longer if a natural curiosity had not drawn his eyes onto the next ball, which must represent the earth. When he saw it, his whole mind stood still for a moment. The ball was there, but where the flame-like figure should have been, a deep depression of irregular shape had been cut, as if to erase it. Once then, but his speculations faltered and became silent before a series of unknowns, he looked at the next circle. Here there was no ball. Instead, the bottom of this circle touched the top of the big segment filled with Malakandrian scenes so that Malakandra at this point touched the solar system and came out of it in perspective toward the spectator. Now that his mind had grasped the design, he was astonished at the vividness of it all. He stood back and drew a deep breath preparatory to tackling some of the mysteries in which he was engulfed. Malacandra then was Mars, the Earth, but at this point a sound of tapping or hammering, which had been going on for some time without gaining admission to his consciousness, became too insistent to be ignored. And that's when he talks to the uh, Piffle Triggy. But there's another example of a picture of a kind of ekphrasis where a a scene is is being described. Yeah, does anything surprise you about this? Or or is he getting some kind of new view of his own world through looking at these pictures?
1: I think, I guess it's just moving him deeper or moving you deeper along to... Trying to understand what is going on with the earth being the silent planet. I do think it's interesting that he has Venus be feminine in Malachandrian mythology, also. Like, I'm as curious as Ransom to know that, but I, I don't think Lewis ever really gives an answer to that unless he does in Paraland, and I just don't remember it. But um, yeah, 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 yeah I, that's interesting.
0: I think it gets closer in Paraland. Um, I think he. He kind of gets closer to suggesting that our mythologies on earth actually have their basis in spiritual realities, right? So, right. because so much of it is Eldila, both good Eldila and bad Eldila, right? That rumor, like distorted rumor of the way things really are, gets through to us through a lot of our mythologies, right? So that Mars really is warlike and Venus really is feminine. But, but, and even in the character of, you know, Venus, the planet as well, it's like a very warm sort of gentle motherly world. And he even proposes in Paralandra something like pretty radical by, by, you know, sort of modern lights, which is that bodies express a gender that is already there, right? That right. That that gender is primarily spiritual and or or I should say sex is primarily spiritual, right? And that and that bodies actually are meant to express that sex in a particular, you know, embodied way. But if you take the bodies away, that sex is still a kind of constant. Right. And that and that therefore applies to spirits as well, right? That, That spirits are not sexless just because they're neither married or given in marriage, according to Jesus, right? It doesn't right. doesn't mean that they don't have differentiation in that way, but it's yeah, it's it's interesting. And also, like there are other there are other things, right? the the giant in the cave who's a shepherd, and. Eats cheeses and and milk, right? And and he's just <laughs> right. you know the only difference is that Algrey has two eyes, right? And and looks a little bit more like a bird than Polyphemus does. There are just all kinds of places where Ransom will see, in both in both the voyage to Mars and the voyage to Venus, right? We'll see these things. Then he's like, oh yeah, that's a lot like our mythology. That's weird, and there's really good reason why. But yeah and the only other moment where he gets kind of gets a new view in, in that chapter of of the world is he's he's talking to Kanaka Baraka the uh, the piffle triggy and uh, or the piffle trig I guess I should say because it's singular and uh, talks to him about yeah, his his kind of craft. Which is interesting because there's a there's a moment in First Men in the Moon too, where they bring in like a an, an artist Selenite, right, to draw a picture of Kavor and he acts a little bit like Kanaka <laughs> Baraka does here, you know, just focusing on the way he looks and telling him not to move and things like that. But he sees the portrait sort of carved by Kanaka Baraka of of himself. And, you know, he did, he did a good job with the spaceship, right? But beside it stood three figures, for all of which Ransom had apparently been the model. He recoiled from them in disgust, even allowing for the strangeness of the subject from a Malachandrian point of view and for the stylization of their art. Still, he thought, the creature might have made a better attempt at the human form than these stock like dummies, almost as thick as they were tall, and sprouting about the head and neck into something that looked like fungus he hedged i expect it is like me as i look to your people he said it is not how they would draw me in my own world no said the piffletrig i do not mean it to be too like too like and they will not believe it those who are born after so yeah i didn't i didn't draw you as ugly as you know as you really are you know because they just wouldn't believe how grotesque you are so yeah pretty pretty fun yeah. Anything else about this exchange with Kanaka Baraka or the, or the pictures?
1: I do think it's interesting at the, near the end of his discussion with Kanaka Baraka, how the, fiffle Triggies, whatever, however, that should be pluralized, how they like go mining for the gold and work with it. Because there's that notion of like, you have to be down there. You have to be looking for it to really know what it is that you're then using and the difference yeah. of that versus You know, humans have this clear division of labor where you have the miners and you have the artists and they would never be one in the same, which I really liked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's very romantic, right? It's very kind of like late 19th century (laughs) arts and crafts movement sort of view of of the arts. And it certainly makes a certain amount of sense, right? Because you know a material better when you... Actually, I don't know if I would have said that Michelangelo's work would have been better if he'd actually gone and like taken the limestone out, you know, maybe it would have, but it would have, it would have taken a lot of his time from sculpting. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's also, I mean, I'm not sure how to square that with Lewis's or the Malacandran's actual division of labor that they do have, right? Where. True. The piffletriggy will make things for other people to use for other creatures to use, even though they they mine as well as make. The sorns often think up things for them to make, and they get to them when they have the time, right? But there's still a like there's still a division of labor of of some kind here, even if it's yeah, even if it seems like maybe more fair to to Lewis. Interestingly, like one of the pieces of criticism that Haldane had because Haldane is Marxist because he just views that as more scientific than Lewis's sort of like, yeah, you know, he viewed Lewis very much as like someone who through his books was maintaining the status quo in England and possibly America right. as well. And, you know, an enemy of, you know, the, the future Marxist order or whatever, but he does comment on like, well, you know, Lewis has these creatures basically living in a communist utopia, and you know, and he criticizes divine and all of this stuff, but he's unwilling to join the struggle on the earth, you know, to 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 bring these sorts of conditions about, which is which is interesting. But yeah, it's it's a very romantic view of art, and it's yeah, probably fair enough. His offense, the the offense that he feels when he sees humans pictured, right, <clears throat> and first. First he's seen, I mean, these portraits are not doing Earth many favors. His planet has had like the Yarsa is cut out of his planet, kind of like when when you have carvings in other cultures, and there was like a, a king that that whoever supplanted them particularly wishes people to forget, you know. Right. Uh, I know there's one in Egypt, I can't remember who it was right now, but they would just kind of like cut out all of the inscriptions of his name, you know, or or his Pictures or whatever else. This seems a little bit like that, but 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 yeah. Like his his planet doesn't get a face. Um, it's the silent planet that nobody goes to and nobody hears from. And uh, also, people are short and stumpy, and uh, and he gets he gets annoyed by that. But then in chapter nineteen, as Ransom is beginning to answer questions posed to him by the Oyarsa of Malakandra. You know, it's interrupted by Weston Divine being brought by a number of number of Hrossa. After these, Hrossa came a number of others armed with harpoons and apparently guarding two creatures, which he did not recognize. The light was behind them as they entered between the two farthest monoliths. They were much shorter than any animal he has yet seen in Malacandra. And he gathered that they were bipeds. Though the lower limbs were so thick and sausage-like, That he hesitated to call them legs the bodies were a little narrower at the top than at the bottom so as to be very slightly pear-shaped and the heads were neither round like those of harassa nor long like those of thorns but almost square they stumped along on narrow heavy-looking feet which they seemed to press into the ground with unnecessary violence and now their faces were becoming visible as masses of lumped and puckered flesh of variegated color fringed in some bristly dark substance Suddenly, with an indescribable change of feeling, he realized that he was looking at men. The two prisoners were Weston and Divine, and he, for one privileged moment, had seen the human form with almost Malacandrian eyes. So this great moment, right, where where he actually sees, because he's so used to seeing creatures from Malacandra, he finally sees humans the way they appear to Malacandrians, and he's just kind of disgusted by the way they look but uh, yeah I don't know if you had thoughts on on that or, or if that seemed worth remarking on
1: oh I thought it was funny I <laughs> it made me feel sad I started imagining my like viewing myself like that I was like, oh. uh,
0: yeah <laughs> yeah I mean we all we all have moments like this <laughs> we look in the <laughs> mirror right it's just saying loose is just saying that like well maybe what we see in those moments is the actual truth, right? <laughs> right. Um, but uh, yeah, if only if only we were taller and stretched out with very long faces and and long noses. But I, I mean, I think this gets to something, though. You know, we all we all have particular aesthetic ideals and preferences, and we tend to be attracted to people of our own species and and all of that. But like viewed from this other sort of point of view there's an inherent ridiculousness in it seems like all creatures right like
1: right
0: uh, there's a uh, there's an inherent dignity in all creatures but there's also an inherent absurdity in all creatures right and you you get this with the malechandrons too Earlier in the, uh, in, the, in the previous chapter, right? Chapter 18, that night Ransom slept in the guest house, which was a real house built by Fiffletriggy and richly decorated. His pleasure at finding himself in this respect under more human conditions was qualified by the discomfort which, despite his reason, he could not help feeling in the presence at close quarters of so many Malachandrian creatures. All three species were represented. They seemed to have no uneasy feeling towards each other. That there were some differences of the kind that occur in a railway carriage on earth. The Sorens finding the house too hot and the piffletriggy finding it too cold. He learned more of Malacandrian humor and of the noises that expressed it in this one night than he had learned during the whole of his life on the strange planet hitherto. Indeed, nearly all Malacandrian conversations in which he had yet taken part had been grave. Apparently, the comic spirit arose chiefly from the meeting of the different kinds of Now. The jokes of all three were equally incomprehensible to him. He thought he could see differences in kind, as that the Sorns seldom got beyond irony, while the Harasa were extravagant and fantastic, and the piffletriggy were sharp and excelled in abuse. But even when he understood all the words, he could not see the points. He went early to bed. So, you know, he's left out of the joke a little bit, right? But they all find each other kind of absurd as well right right which is which is which is which is interesting and 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 suggests that the ability to laugh at each other as humans is not necessarily the same thing as like hating each other right
1: right which,
0: which is interesting that that like this is one way that rational creatures deal with difference right and 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 it's it's a kind of good-humored sort of laughing at one another that allows yourself also to be the object of the joke, right? But of course, when Weston comes in and begins to try to, you know, he has he's a particular strategy for dealing with these primitive people. He still is locked into this view that these people, because they don't have sophisticated technology, they must be simple. They must be this like particular developmental level of society, he's talking to them, Basically in what sounds like pigeon English, um, but rather than, and, and this, you know, this will happen of course, in like movies and, and books and things like that. And, and, and in actuality, you know, at, at the time, oh, very often English who are dealing with civilizations that they think are more primitive than theirs will speak in this kind of simpler form of English. Because it's easier to do transactions that way without requiring that the other person know about, but but the way it will end up sounding to other English people is very primitive, right. Or, or, or childlike as though the people who speak English in this way must be childlike people instead of like people who know their own language and also know (laughs) the (laughs) fundamentals of English, but, but Lewis just brilliantly turns this on his head on its head because it's western and divine that don't know Mal- Malacandran, right and they can they can't speak and they sound like they sound like british imperialists trying to talk in pidgin english with savages but they're actually the ones who are the savages and and talking in Malandrian in a very sort of a childlike simple form so they they address mainly this one cross, who is old and sleeping, who has fallen asleep because they think he's in a trance and he's the witch doctor and he's the one that's casting his voice and making the Oyarsa, you know, the, the effect of the Oyarsa. God, exclaimed Divine in English, don't tell me they've got a loudspeaker. Ventriloquism, replied Weston in a husky whisper, quite common among savages. The witch doctor, a medicine man, pretends to go into a trance. He does it. The thing to do is to identify the medicine man and address your remarks to him wherever the voice seems to come from. It shatters his nerve and shows you've seen through him. Do you see any of the brutes in a trance? By Jove, I've spotted him. Due credit must be given to Weston for his powers of observation. He had picked out the only creature in the assembly which was not standing in an attitude of reverence and attention. This was an elderly hroth close beside him. It was squatting, its eyes were shut taking a step towards it he struck a defiant attitude and exclaimed in a loud voice his knowledge of the language was elementary why you take our puff bangs away we very angry with you we not afraid so he goes on and on this way in <laughs> this very simplistic allocandrian and both his own prejudice and also, simple-mindedness is, is, is sort of revealed through this, this type of language. And at a certain point, he gets so ridiculous and tries to bribe them with a, with a necklace, right? To Ransom's intense discomfort, Weston, at this point, whipped out of his pocket a brightly colored necklace of beads, the undoubted work of Mr. Woolworth, and began dangling it in front of the faces of his guards, turning slowly round and round, repeating, Pretty, pretty! See? See? The result of this maneuver was more striking than Weston himself had anticipated. Such a roar of sounds as human ears had never heard before baying of Hrosa, piping of Piffletriggy, booming of Sorns burst out and rent the silence of that august place, waking echoes from the distant mountain walls. Even in the air above them, there was a faint ringing of the eldel voices. It is greatly to Weston's credit that though he paled at this, he did not lose his nerve. You no know, roar at me! he thundered. No try, make me afraid. Me no afraid of you. You must forgive my people, said the voice of the Oyarsa, and even it was subtly changed. But they are not roaring at you, they are only laughing. But Weston did not know the Malacandrian word for laugh. Indeed, it was not a word he understood very well in any language. So again, just this, this emphasis on the value of being able to laugh at oneself, right. And how, if you're earnestly with this sort of Victorian earnestness, right. Trying Mm -hmm. to, but, but like turning that earnestness toward this project of conquering the solar system through science and extending the human race through eugenics, then yeah, a good possible remedy for that is, is just. Being able to laugh at yourself, or failing that, like being laughed at by by other people. But apparently, another remedy is having your head dunked in water a bunch because that's the next thing that happens to Weston. Um, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> your system says, <laughs> says like, oh, his blood is too hot. He needs to have he needs to have his head dunked in, in water in cold. Like get get some water that's been cooled down. And, and, and dunk him a few times while we have this funeral for Hyoy, right. But uh, the funeral is very moving. I, yeah, we don't really have time to, to cover it. Um, it's one of two songs that you get in both this and Paralandra. This one's about a body, like a a creature being unbodied, right. And having its Mm -hmm. now its soul kind of rise again. And yeah, it's, it's super interesting and profound. And uh, divine is is very impressed by the fact that Oyars is able to just dissolve the dead cross that he and Weston have killed. But uh, yeah, he he's kind of cowed by this, right? But but Weston, when he comes back, is still defiant, right? And expects that he's going to die, but he is not. Um, you know, he he wants to have his say and and strike a blow for science and humanity and all of that. This is after he's been dunked by a by a Hros who is kind of like, I hope we've done right, O Yarsa. But we do not know. We dipped his head in the cold water seven times, but the seventh time something fell off it. We had thought it was the top of his head, but now we saw it was a covering made of the skin of some other creature. So we have this kind of like, who was the king who had to be dunked in or no it wasn't okay it was a general in the Assyrian army I'd be dunked seven times in the in the the river in in Jerusalem I don't remember anyway it, it reminded me of that I also like when something fell off his head is that a toupee or is that a hat
1: oh that's a good I assumed it was a hat but maybe it is a toupee yeah.
0: that uh, would be
1: funnier you're
0: probably right I've heard more people interpret it as a hat but uh yeah it would be funnier if it was a toupee <laughs>
1: I think you should just promote that interpretation.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that. So Weston is, although it doesn't refer to as toupee again, like even when they're both like naked on Paralandra later on. So true.
1: You know, probably Jeez. probably
0: the hat is more likely, but toupee would be funnier. Yeah, so Weston and Divine are contrasted. Divine, Oyarsa said, is like an animal. Weston, at least... Could maybe be cured. He he at least cares about something besides himself, right?
1: Right. Yes. Yeah.
0: Which, which is key. But by the end of the interview, Weston's kind of like, Nope, I I like the bent one. I like the devil because he at least is dynamic and doing things. Maladil, all tucky talkie Right. And 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 before that, of course, you have this great, great moment. Where Lewis is just lambasting some of these some of these buzzwords of of scientism and and progressivism because Weston can't give this famous last speech he wants to give if he doesn't have access to these sorts of English buzzwords and idioms that sort of smuggle in concepts right in these particular scientistic concepts into language so, so West, Weston says I may seem a vulgar robber but I bear on my shoulders the destiny of the human race. Your tribal life, with its Stone Age weapons and beehive huts, its primitive coracles and elementary social structure, has nothing to compare with our civilization, with our science, medicine, and law, our armies, our architecture, our commerce, and our transport system, which is rapidly annihilating space and time. Our right to supersede you is the right of the higher over the lower. Life!
1: Half a moment, said Ransom in English. That's about as much as I can manage at one go. Then, turning to Oyarsa, he began translating as well as he could. The process was difficult, and the result, which he felt to be rather unsatisfactory, was something like this. Among us, Oyarsa, there's a kind of Hnau who will take other Hnau's food and... and things when they are not looking. He says he is not an ordinary one of that kind. He says what he does now will make very different things happen to those of our people who are not yet born. He says that among you, now of one kindred, all live together, and the Rasa have spears like those we used a very long time ago, and your huts are small and round, and you're both small and light and like our old ones, and you have only one ruler. He says it is different with us. He says we know much. There's a thing that happens in our world when the body of a living creature feels pain and becomes weak, and he says we sometimes know how to stop it. He says we have many bent people, and we kill them or shut them in huts, and that we have people for settling quarrels between the bent now about their huts and mates and things. He says we have many ways for the hanau of one land to kill those of another, and some are trained to do it. He says we build very big and strong huts of stones and other things like the Fiffle Triggy, and he says we exchange many things among ourselves and can carry heavy weights very quickly a long way because of all this, he says it would not be the act of a now if our people killed all your people.
0: All right, let's do one more. Cause that's too fun.
1: <laughs>
0: as soon as ransom finished, Weston continued. Life is greater than any system of morality. Her claims are absolute. It is not by tribal taboos and copybook maxims that she has pursued her relentless march from the amoeba to man, from man to civilization.
1: He says, began Ransom, that living creatures are stronger than the question whether an act is bent or good. No, that cannot be right. He says it is better to be alive and bent than to be dead. No, he says, he's, I cannot say what he says, Zoyarsa, in your language. But he goes on to say that the only good thing is that there should be very many creatures alive. He says there were many other animals before the First Men, and the later ones were better than the earlier ones. But he says the animals were not born because of what is said to the young about bent and good action by their elders. And he says these animals did not feel any pity.
0: All right. I mean, possibly there's a bit of straw manning here on Lewis's part, but yeah, he he does do a great job of taking words and concepts that have a certain amount of like, what's the word I want? Capital have a certain amount of, yeah, they uh, they tend to be accepted by people who hear them um and right. just sort of and just sort of stripping them of their emotional value by translating them into other concepts right and 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 putting them more clearly like the, all the baggage around the word tribal or the word primitive or you know the word let's see yeah you know copybook maxims or civilization right all of all of these terms have so much have so much emotional resonance because in some ways the arguments concerning them or not even arguments but just the the positions concerning them have already sort of been settled in so many people's minds right so by by changing them there's kind of a turning inside out and turning upside down of, of even this language that he's doing throughout the rest of the book and turning our picture of ourselves upside down or even the earth upside down so yeah it's just super fun and like a good Socratic teacher, Oyarsa just keeps asking Weston questions, you know, about, okay, so you want to travel to all the planets? He's like, oh, yes, you know, we're going, you know, human beings, because we're the most advanced and we're the best, we're going to outlast all the other people and we'll replace them and, you know, and, and, and we'll spread as far as we possibly can. And Oyarsa's kind of like, you do, you do realize that like all the planets one day will be incapable of supporting life what's going to happen then and he's just quiet right because yeah there there isn't a good answer it's just kind of like let's try to survive for as long as we possibly can and and we will ultimately fail and the question of course from someone who thinks that morality is very very important is how much sacrificing of of your own morality have you been making in this sort of ends justifies means yeah justification of 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 bad action, after bad action, after bad action, I'm like, there's no actual end. It, it never, there, there is no end. It's, it's a, you know, as, as Alan Moore actually says in Watchmen, nothing ever ends. Right. When, when, when one character is asking about the ends justifies the means thing. So, so yeah, they end up, you know, being asked to go back home to earth. Ransom's given a choice about whether he wants to stay on Malakandra or go back to Earth, he decides to go back to Earth. They almost die getting back to Earth because they have to pass closer to the sun than the human beings have been. And then finally, after passing out, he hears rain on the outside of the spaceship. Gets out, goes, of course, to the nearest bar or nearest pub, I guess. And order, <laughs> orders a pint of bitter. Which is which is which is I guess just like the way if you're an inkling that you end any story in the 1930s is either with, either with alcohol or with tobacco, right? Because that's the last word in the Hobbit is tobacco jar, the last thing that a character says, "A pint of bitter, please," said Ransom. So yeah, that lets you know that you're home and you're in a comfortable place again. Okay, so final goofy question. And I don't know, maybe there is like some sort of Facebook personality test based on out of the silent planet, but would you characterize like, yourself as more of a Sorn, more of a Hross or more of a trig?
1: So I was thinking about this, that, like I would, I would want to say oh cross, like that's what I aspire to be, I think in life, but I think I'm probably more of a Sorn in actuality that that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to go for.
0: I think I'm probably in about the same boat. Yeah, I I want to be like Lewis. I want to be a poet, right? Or at least like a novelist, which Lewis had no problem doing, but I can't seem to pull off. But uh, yeah, I I would love to be more of a more of a Horace. But yeah, I'm I'm probably more of a Sorn as well. I like to make things, but I'm not very talented at like making three-dimensional things so i think that rules right yeah that's Um, right right.
1: i also don't particularly want to like look like a insect frog
0: right right well this is personality test right this is true true.
1: this is your just my energy yeah
0: yeah and I, i i was wondering and i i generally i distrust all personality tests just yeah by by virtue of liking to poke holes and things which probably makes me more of a sworn as well but 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 yeah you know how how they have like a a base thing that you are and then like with also tendencies of this or that right right so maybe i'm like i don't know i'm not i'm also the, like i'm not very logical either so I, i'm not really sure it's just exactly what i would be
1: strange conglomeration um, of all of them or
0: yeah, or none I, of them. <laughs> I guess I'm just Tulkandran, but, but listeners, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what, what view you've, you view yourself as more. And also I, every so often reading Lewis, I get ideas for fan fiction, which I almost never write, but, but I was thinking it would be really interesting to hear a story from the Bible or from mythology Retold, kind of using the like, actually very nuanced and interesting cosmology that Lewis comes up with in *Out of the Silent Planet*, using that as as kind of a framework, right? So angels are, Eldila, instead of Satan falling from heaven, he's bound, like you know, like the giants are bound to Tartarus or something like that, right? And to to Earth, and just thinking through a lot of the a lot of the Bible stories, a lot of the a lot of the myths that could totally work for for those but uh, yeah did you were you thinking about any of those sophie do you have any ideas of how a bible story or a myth could be retold
1: oh i mean i don't have any specific ones that i've thought of but i'm sure any of them would be super epic
0: Um, yeah yeah i i hadn't i hadn't had enough time to think about about it either i just want to make sure if if you had something that you're like (laughs) oh (laughs) this would be awesome make sure to make sure to give you a a chance to throw it out all right well soby thank you so much for joining me for this episode wrapping up out of the silent planet on the inklings variety hour yeah can you remind us of any pot other podcasts in which you might be involved where people could find you talking about things like HG Wells or or other things?
1: (laughs) Yes, I do a podcast called Beneath the Willow Tree. I do it significantly less now that I'm in grad school. But the most recent episode from a few months ago was specifically on HG Wells. And hopefully there will be more on HG Wells in the future, because I really love him.
0: (laughs) Sweet. Yeah, he's he's really cool. Like I know, you know, Lewis does not like his philosophy, but, uh, you know, I mean, his, his note, even at the beginning of this book is very complimentary, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Wells obviously has brilliant stories. My, my son, I was really gratified to see that as he was lying in bed, my nine-year-old, he's reading the Island, Dr. Moreau and uh, gosh, and there was another Wells, the invisible man, the, the Wells, HG Wells, invisible man. So I was, I was happy to see that. Because yeah, Wells, Wells has fantastic stories. There's this one short story called, I think it was like called like the door in the wall or something like that. But yeah, really, really cool. And, and very much the sort of thing that Lewis would be into anyway, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Join us next time. As we talk to David C. Downing about out of the silent planet, Dr. Downing is the co-director of the Wade center and he wrote really the first serious scholarly study of the space trilogy called planets in peril so definitely yeah i'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say about out of the silent planet i'll see you all then and uh, sophie thank you again and a quick note from the chris who is editing this episode we will indeed have dr david c downing On the show next Tuesday, so make sure to check that out. But on Thursday of this week, I will be interviewing the first of a series of authors publishing through Signum University Press. Be sure to stay tuned for that. I'll be interviewing Kay Ben-Avraham, who is writing a novel called The Flower of the Cedar. This is a novel about dryads. It's very much in the spirit of the Inklings. Stay tuned for Thursday's podcast to find out how you can be a part of the process of shaping this novel.
1: All this encounter full of joy and scheduled on a decent plan. With here, an addict of Tolkien, there, a Charles Williams fan.
0: I would love to get to the the notes at the end, so chapter 22 and the postscript. I don't think we have time to, but yeah, is, is there is there anything else that I have not mentioned or talked about that you wanted to make sure that we talk about?
1: And I think we covered most of my underlining. There's so much obviously we had to be Oh my out. <laughs> gosh.
0: Yeah, it's it just hurts my heart. And 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 Voyage of the Dawn Treader did too. Like when when I had to just speed through that as well.